Welcome to episode number 29 of Calm History. This is a serial episode featuring the story of Henry Ford, part 6, launch of the Ford Motor Company. I'm Harris, and I created this time machine of tranquility to bring you the drama and excitement of history, but in a calm tone so you can just chill and relax. All right, this is part six of a series of episodes about Henry Ford, the founder of the Ford Motor Company. This entire series follows his journey to create the first automobile that middle-class Americans could afford. The earlier parts of this series can be found on the Bonus and Archives podcast for Soak Plus members. Here's a summary of what's happened so far in this story. In parts one through five, Henry Ford is born in Michigan, learns basic mechanics on his farm, runs away to Detroit, gets a job as a machinist, has an idea for mass assembly of a device that is not a car. He tackles a family crisis, gets a job at an electrical company, creates his first one-cylinder car, and then creates and races his first two-cylinder car. In this episode, Ford is going to build and race a new four-cylinder car. I won't spoil the result, but I'll share that this episode is filled with two dramatic car races, the rise and fall of his first car company, the production of his first mass-produced car, and it ends with a potential crisis that could ruin his entire business. Yep, Henry Ford is moving fast and breaking things. A note to my SoPlus members. You can access all the prior episodes in this series about Henry Ford in the Bonus and Archives podcast. I also plan to stitch together the first six parts of this series into a single three-hour mega-episode. That special treat will be coming soon. If you'd like to become a Silk Plus member and get free access for a limited time to every bonus and archive episode of Calm History, along with 500 other episodes, then just use the link in the episode notes or go to silkpodcasts.com. Okay. Time to lean back, close your eyes, and settle into my time machine of tranquility. I hope this episode distracts and relaxes your overactive brain squirrels. The Story of Henry Ford, Part 6, Launch of the Ford Motor Company When Henry Ford had won his first race a few weeks ago. His car only had two cylinders 
and 26 horsepower. In contrast, his rival drove a race car in that same race that had 70 horsepower. If his opponent hadn't run into mechanical problems, then Ford would have lost that race. To be confident that he would win his next big race, Ford knew that he needed a car with more than 70 horsepower. Sure enough, thanks to the financial support of his new investor Cooper, Ford did just that. His new race car had four pistons, and these pistons were larger than the ones in his two-cylinder car, so they delivered more power per piston than his prior car. After several months of work and a big chunk of Cooper's money, he tripled his horsepower and achieved his goal of 80 horsepower. Ford, along with Cooper, took this new car out one night for a trial. How fast do you figure she'll go? Cooper asked. Don't know, Ford replied. Guess we'll find out. Ford climbed into his single-seat race car while Cooper watched closely. The noise of the engine echoed throughout Ford's neighborhood. Ford put on the power, and there was a mighty roar, a burst of flame, and then the car shot out of sight. Cooper stood alone on the curb, listening to the car as it raced through the neighborhood. A few minutes later, the powerful car came roaring back and stopped. Ford remained in the driver's seat, white as a ghost. Did you go full power? Cooper asked. I didn't dare, Ford replied, while sitting in his car breathless. Any guesses to her top speed? asked Cooper. Ford looked at Cooper and replied, No, but why don't you hop in and see what you think? Cooper paused, but then climbed into the driver's seat as Ford climbed out. Once again, the car roared to life and shot down the avenue. Several minutes later, the car returned. Cooper looked at Ford with his mouth agape. I only put her to half power, and I easily must have hit 40 miles per hour, Cooper exclaimed. He then climbed out of the car seat and stood beside Ford. The two of them stared at the car in silence. After a time, Cooper finally said, I hope you don't think that I'm going to drive that thing in the races. I wouldn't do it for a huge pile of gold. You'll have to do it. Ford shook his head and said, No way. We need to find someone with real racing experience. Cooper agreed, and then added, Yeah, and someone who was crazy enough to do it. Suddenly, he had an idea. See here, I know a man, Cooper said. Barney Oldfield. If there's a man on earth 
who would drive that car, then he's the one. He isn't afraid of anything under the sun. He's a bicycle rider I raced against in Denver. Barney Oldfield. Yeah, he's our guy. Ford furrowed his brow and said, Never heard of him. But if you think he would drive this car, then let's get hold of him. Where is he? He ought to be in Salt Lake now, Cooper answered. I'll wire him. Cooper sent a message to Oldfield that night. A reply came late the next day. Oldfield wanted to know more about the car, while also stating that he'd never driven a car before. Cooper wired him back with more information, as well as a day and a place to do some training runs. They planned to meet at a track in a month. Cooper and Ford hoped that Oldfield would agree to show up. Even with an experienced man, the danger of driving that car in the races was great. The two men stuck close to the telegraph office, waiting for Oldfield to reply. At last, a wire transmission brought the final word. Oldfield would drive the car. He'd arrive on June 1st, exactly one week before the date of the race. This made for a busy week. Ford and Cooper prepared Oldfield as best they could. They crammed his mind with facts about the motor, the factor of safety in making quick turns, and the way to handle the steering lever. On the day before the race, Oldfield took the car out on the tracks and made one circuit safely, holding it at a slow speed. I can handle her all right, he reported. I'll let her go full power tomorrow. The day of the race arrived. Ford and Cooper, tense with anxiety, went over the car thoroughly while coaching Oldfield for the last time. In the meantime, James Cousins observed it all from the grandstand. Cousins was the hardware merchant from Detroit who was helping Ford with the business side. It was Cousins who had the idea to do another race to attract more investors. And now, Cousins was in the grandstand, joined by a bunch of businessmen who might just be potential investors. That is, if they liked what they saw at the race today. An announcement was made over the track speaker for the start of the first big race. About six cars lined up, including Oldfield in the seat of Ford's new 80-horsepower car. He gripped the two-handled steering tiller and proclaimed, Well, this beast of a car may kill me, but they'll remember my amazing speed as I go over the bank. This was the type of bravado and risk-taking that Cooper knew him for. Ford cranked the engine for Oldfield, and the race was on. With his hair flapping behind him, Oldfield shot off the starting line 
like a bullet. He didn't dare look around. He just stared straight ahead, gripped the steering tiller tightly, and gave that car all the power it had. At the end of the first half mile, he was far in the lead and gaining even more speed. The crowd was astounded and hysterical with excitement. They watched him streak past the grandstand while the next car was a quarter of a mile behind him. On the second lap, his grip never relaxed and his speed never slowed. He spun around the course again, driving as if the field was at his heels, which they weren't. At last, he roared in at the finish, a half a mile ahead of the next car. Quite impressive in any race, especially one that was only three miles in total length. News of this accomplishment went around the world. In one day, Ford was hailed as a mechanical genius. Cousins knew that this was exactly what he wanted the other businessmen to see at the track that day. He brought the potential investors from the grandstand and down to the track. Before Oldfield had even gotten out of the car, the businessmen had decided to meet Ford the next day and form a company. The race had convinced them. And sure enough, during the following week, a company was formed. Ford was made vice president, general manager, superintendent, master mechanic, and designer. He held a small block of stock and was paid a salary of $150 a month. This was the same amount he was paid while working for the Edison Company, but Ford was satisfied. The salary was plenty for his needs. He waved that subject aside as of little importance. At last, he thought, he could put his big plans into practice. His prior idea for a highly efficient 50-cent watch factory was at last to be carried out, but on a much grander scale with cars. He planned to produce, in the most efficient way possible, enormous numbers of cheap, standardized cars. He began working on it with all the enthusiasm that he had felt when he began building his first car. But almost immediately, there was friction between him and the investors. They wanted him to design luxury cars, not cheap cars. This was exactly what he feared. They demanded that his saving and reduced costs of production should be added to their profits, not deducted from the price of the car. These men were confident and demanding. After all, they were successful businessmen, so they intended to run their factory on business lines. Ford would later state, quote, I prefer not to talk about that year. 
those men were right according to their own business principles. I suppose some of them are still building a fairly successful luxury car and selling it for three to four thousand dollars. I don't want to criticize other men in the auto industry and the choices they make. The trouble was that they couldn't see things my way. They couldn't understand that the thing that is best for the greatest number of people is bound to win in the end. They said I was impractical, that notions like that would hurt business. They said ideals were all very well, but they wouldn't work. I didn't know anything about business, they said. They could build one luxury car and sell it at 200% profit. So why take the risk of building 40 cheap cars and selling them all at 5% profit? That was their concern. They said common people wouldn't buy automobiles anyway. I thought the more people who had a good thing, the better. My car was going to be cheap, so the man that needed it most could afford to buy it. I kept designing cheaper cars, and they kept objecting. Finally, it came to a point where I had to give up my idea or get out of the company. Of course, I got out. End quote. The year was 1900, and Ford was about 37 years old. He had a wife, a child, but no capital. And now, he also had no company. Ever resolute and determined, Ford announced that he would somehow manufacture his own car in his own way. Ford started recruiting his team for his new company. Cousins, of course, was one of the first to join him. Cousins had helped Ford to organize the first company, and now he would help to raise capital for the new company. Another early recruit was Wills. He had worked with Ford before as a designer and draftsman. He had a few hundred dollars, which he was willing to risk on Ford's ability. The team expanded further with some machinists. Next, they needed a place to begin manufacturing their cars. Ford rented an old shack on Mack Avenue and brought his tools from his old shed. With his skeleton crew, Ford finally began building his cheap cars. News of his venture spread quickly throughout Detroit, and the cars sold before they were built. Men found their way to the crude shop, talked to Ford in his greasy overalls, and paid deposits on cars for future delivery. These deposits often helped to buy the material for the same cars that they had purchased. Ford was working on a narrow margin. After expenses were paid, every remaining dollar went directly into more material for more cars. At first, 
his machinists went home at the end of their regular hours, while Ford remained and worked far into the night by himself. Before long, the men became vitally invested in Ford's success and returned after dinner to help him. In the meantime, a few men had been found who were willing to buy stock in the new company. It was capitalized at $100,000, of which $15,000 was paid in. This large cash injection allowed Ford to ramp up his team, efforts, and production. The workforce was increased to nearly 40 men, and Wills became manager of the mechanical department. Truckloads of material were ordered, but always with precision and efficiency. Every pound of iron and every inch of wire was calculated with care. Ford made sure that each shipment would build a certain number of cars without the waste of ten cents worth of material. The company could then sell the cars before payment for the material came due. Ford set a price of $900 for each car. He figured that this amount would cover the cost of material, wages, and overhead, but also leave a margin for buying more material. A thousand points of stress now filled his days and nights. Sure, Ford had investors, but that initial money would run out quickly. A lot of the initial investment went to creating the bare bones of his production plant, and the rest, well, the rest would be eaten up by wages within ten weeks. Yes, money was coming in through car sales, but within hours, that money would be spent on materials to build the next set of cars. And then, Ford was often unable to pay his workers until he sold the next shipment of cars. Luckily, though, the cars sold well. The orders started locally, from the citizens of Detroit, Michigan. Then orders came in from Cleveland, Ohio, Chicago, Illinois, and other surrounding cities and states. It was the combination of their simplicity, low price, and strong power that attracted buyers. Most other car manufacturers were selling their cars for three times or more the cost of a Ford car. Overall, Ford was having success, but that success was built precariously on a thousand tiny points of efficiency. Ford, with his genius for factory management, reduced the waste of material or labor to the smallest minimum. He worked on new designs for simpler, cheaper motors. He optimized orders for the materials used to build the cars. Even his own living expenses were cut to the bone. Every cent of profit 
went back into the factory. In 1903 and 1904, Ford sold about 1,500 cars during his initial launch of his new company. He named his first mass-produced car the Ford Model A. And to keep costs low, it was just a two-cylinder engine. For most buyers, this was their first car, so price was more important than power. To also save costs, his first set of Ford Model A cars were produced in just one color. Perhaps you've heard the famous quote that's been attributed to Henry Ford. Any color the customer wants, as long as it's black. Well, that might have been true for the later Ford Model T, but the Ford Model A was a different story. Ford's factory initially produced Ford's Model A in one color, and that color was red. Anyway, all was going fairly well until winter arrived, and then sales slowed down dramatically. He knew that sales would surge again in spring, yet if winter didn't bring in enough revenue, then he couldn't build a surplus of cars to sell during the spring surge. Ford needed to find a way to boost his winter sales or to make sure that he did have that spring surge of sales. If his own recent experiences had taught him anything, it was that racing his cars resulted in attention and money. Maybe he would race a newer version of his car, one that had more power. Although his current cars for sale were only two-cylinder, he had already designed a more powerful four-cylinder car that he planned to put on the market the following year. If he raced his new four-cylinder car that he was preparing for mass production, perhaps that could bring in a surge of early sales. His plan wasn't to race against other drivers, though, but rather to race against the current speed record. In November, Ford announced that he would try for the world speed record in a four-cylinder car of his own construction. Of course, Ford had already constructed a four-cylinder car for racing. It was the one that Oldfield drove and beat all the other cars by half a mile. Ford planned to rebuild this car with his new design plans. He would not only rebuild the motor, but also the body to be even more suitable for racing. In January of 1904, his new four-cylinder race car was ready. His attempt at a new speed record would occur on Lake St. Clair in Michigan. The driver 
wasn't going to be Oldfield this time, but rather Ford would take on the challenge himself. That day, a stiff wind was blowing over the ice. Although the surface of the lake looked smooth from a distance, it was riddled with crevices and lumps of frozen snow. Ford sat at the helm, bundled in a fur coat, with a fur hat pulled down over his ears. He hoped his engine, his driving skills, and the icy surface didn't bring any surprises. Ford cranked the car, settled himself into the seat, and nodded to the starter. The signal came. Ford threw on the power and was off. Almost immediately, the car struck a large crack in the ice, and two of his wheels lost contact with the frozen lake. Ford clung to his steering tiller to keep from being thrown out of his vehicle. The lake ice wasn't kind. He zigzagged and bounced his way across the surface. Yet, he kept gaining speed. His car almost overturned twice, but Ford kept on course at top speed until the end. His time was eventually announced. He had driven one mile at a top speed of 91 miles per hour, or 147 kilometers per hour. He did it in about 39 seconds, beating the world's record by seven seconds. The new record was sanctioned by the American Automobile Association. The press announced his achievement throughout the lands and referred to his car as the Red Devil. Ford smiled, perhaps partially because he was happy that he survived, but also because he knew that his car sales would see a good surge in the near future. Unfortunately, though, not everyone was smiling. The following day at the factory, Wills met Ford with an anxious face. It was payday, and there wasn't any money. Wills explained the situation to Ford like this. We didn't bother you about it last week because you were so busy with the race. We thought that the check from Chicago would come. It was due two days ago. We wired yesterday, and we haven't received a reply. Mr. Cousins left this morning on the early train to find out what is wrong. You know how it is, Henry. The men need their money for Christmas. And that other company is offering new workers more money than we can pay. I'm afraid our men will quit. And if so, then we can't fill the Cincinnati order. Ford listened and understood the problem. Yet, finding an immediate solution wouldn't be easy. His new speed record should bring in more sales, but probably not in time for this crisis. He knew 
that to raise more money from the stockholders would be impossible. They had gone in as deeply as they could. He was unsure if he could find new investors to purchase some of his own company stocks that he owned. But even if he did, he would then lose control of the company. He didn't want that. The company was still struggling. It had not paid any dividends to investors yet. And to make things worse, competition was rising as new automobile manufacturers were popping up while older ones were bragging about big profits. The Ford company had no marketable assets, nothing but the rented building, the equipment, and a few unfilled orders. Ford told Wills that he would address this crisis with the workers directly. At the end of the day, the men went to the pay office to see if they would be going home that day with money in their pockets. When they arrived, they found Ford standing in the doorway. He said he had something to tell them. Once they had all gathered in a group, Ford stood on a chair so that all of them could hear what he had to say. About a hundred men stood in front of him. Ford explained the situation and basically begged the men to stick with him. The men didn't shout in anger, but neither did they cheer in joy. Ford went home that night unsure if he would have a workforce the next day. This is where I'll pause the story. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Calm History. In the meantime, stay tuned for part seven of the story of Henry Ford in an upcoming episode of Calm History. If you'd like to become a Silk Plus member and get free access for a limited time to every archive and bonus episode of Calm History, including all the earlier episodes about Henry Ford, along with 500 other episodes, then just use the link in the episode notes or go to silkpodcasts.com. Thank you for listening to my podcast. Calm History is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to enjoy more podcasts like The Constant, Underworld, and Subtext.